the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And this is our New Year's Eve show. I know most people will be celebrating New Year's Eve tomorrow, but this is our New Year's Eve show, our last live show of the year, 602-508-0960. So let's have a little bit of fun and interesting, of course, always. And uh, we're going to clear some of our own decks on the way to that fun, too. What we do, Bill and I, is we compile over the course of, I don't know, different kinds of show prep and discussions we have um, off air before the show, interesting things that we put on what we call our evergreen file. And it's not that they're necessarily evergreen. It started that way. It's that they're interesting and maybe a little fun and not particularly tied to the news cycle. And um, we write them down in broad strokes, thinking that Bill will remind me or I'll remind him and we'll get to them. And we've overloaded it to the point where we – I don't know how many items we have on there that we never got to. So we'll, we'll take a look at that too to clear those decks. First, let's go to Rob and Surprise. Hi, Rob. Well, hi, Seth and, uh, and Bill. Um, I want to wish you guys to be among the first. Uh, to wish you guys a happy new year. Hope it is good. Thank you. Um, called you a couple too. days ago. I, I I also you know I was giving kudos to your show in general, but I still have to. I stand by my words about your show being by far the most intellectually stimulating and challenging radio show in the United States, if not the world. You're and, very and kind. It, <laughs> You're well, very. No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm a noted observer of the human condition, Thank and you, I sir. also know that. Well, you're quite welcome, and you deserve it, and you've earned it. Both you and Bill, in fact, I Thank do you. have to admit. Bill, Bill, Bill really loves working it. Uh, don't, don't you, Bill? Don't you, Bill? What do you mean, no, Bill? <laughs> he didn't say no. He said what was the okay. question, because he was doing oh. something else, not paying attention. <laughs> well, okay. Yes. I'm, yes. All, I'm like the real? teacher who wants to take the notes being passed between the students. Oh, I'm sure we'd all like to read what you're writing. That must be... <laughs> I'm sure we'd all like a good laugh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, a couple of days ago, you were talking about George Thorogood, and I'm still waiting to hear any George Thorogood song as a bumper song. Okay, so um, there's okay. development on that front. I, rec- okay, I received a, a card, a seasonal card, shall we say, from a sister yesterday who was a little slow in getting them out, and you open it, and it was bad to the bone. And, and, now, is this a Catholic sister in a nunnery? No, or? no, no. But it started <laughs> with that da-da-da-da. Uh, and not only, not can you play the opening of Bad to the Bone Force, Bill? Not only that, I thought, okay, well, this substantiates my argument that George Thurgood is popular. They, they wouldn't make mm-hmm. his song on a card. Cards, oh, no. are by, by definition, have to be bought and purchased and, and used and appreciated and recognized. They have to, by, by, by definition, be popular. And then it dawned on me, a lot of cell phones set the, their ringer or their alerts to that opening of Bad to the Bone, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you can get them. And um, I Bill, have, Bill, do you want to play it so people know? Hold on, Rob. 
There you go. Yeah. That. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. People will recognize it. Yeah. Fifteen. You of can't course. argue with now, fifteen million album sales. Well, exactly. Do you realize that he is seventy years old already? It's a sad thing. You want to do that? Go down that road. Look at ACDC. You don't want to do that. You don't okay. want to go down looking up the ages of your favorite rockers. It's a very, well, very that's, depressing thing. That's true. That that is sort of true. Although, again, speaking, you know, intellectually, think of them as yeah. timeless. I I would say so. They stand the test of time. Yeah. Indeed. There used to be a T-shirt, "Old Rockers Never Die." They just, who knows, whatever. I don't remember what it said, but yeah. yeah. They, um, I had, you know, along the lines of George Thorogood, a great, uh, and because I know of the high intellectual capabilities of both the show and your audience, I thought a good PhD thesis idea might be George Thorogood's influence as a counter response to the rise of '60s feminism and the postmodernist thought process. That's okay. the title of a great dissertation. That's a great dissertation <laughs> title. Do it again. Yeah. Do it again. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know if I can. Uh, George Thorogood's influence is a counter-response to the rise of 60s feminism and postmodernist thought process. Perfect. Okay. All we would do to improve it is Dr. George Thorogood, right? We'd mm. put a doctor in there. And instead of well, six, yeah. and instead of sixties feminism, say maybe first wave or second wave feminism. But yeah, absolutely, Rob, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, well, yeah, because I, I just thought again, we we want to raise the intellectual capabilities yes. of the audience, yes. and maybe you know gain readers or listeners and and watchers, I guess, on YouTube. Um, Have you seen I, I on really Twitter? I guess maybe Instagram. I'm not sure, Bill. Maybe you'll recognize this. There's two young um, African-American males who are going through old songs of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, everything from Frank Sinatra to The Police, and just finding it fantastic and giving their reviews of it. They're like 13, 14, or 15-year-old boys who have never heard it before. <laughs> it's really quite charming. It's, it's, really, it's very charming. I'll have to look that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Well, now, also, I have to compliment you. I guess I could start a couple days ago when you said asymptotic, which I do recall Bill Buckley loved and used that word often. Oh, did he? Maybe he got it from me. Yeah. Well, maybe he did. I'm not sure. But, you know, again, it's it's a math term. um, And maybe you – well, I look at it from a math head standpoint. You know, you have an XY graph. You have two lines on a graph. Uh, you know, the function y equals f of x. I don't know if that rings any bells or gives you flashbacks. Yeah, no, of course. Right, right. right. Yeah. Well, you've got two lines where values are, are going towards zero but never approach. Never actually hit it. Yeah, never hit the finite point. Yeah, never point. actually hit right. it. Yeah. Right. yeah. So wh- what what exactly, which I never understood, how do you, uh, how do you put that in – the vernacular when it comes well, to I'm trying to remember the context in which I used it, but I think what I said, Bill, do you remember how I used that word? It, I'll give you a, an example. I don't know if this is what I said or not, but I, I think it was something. It might have been in the COVID area, and it might have. Mm-hmm. And it might. Well, let's just use it for vaccines. Let's use it for all vaccines for a second. Okay. Uh, vaccines right. will always be asymptotically close to solving a virus. They will never solve it 100%. That's why you see joy over a 95% success rate. They will never fully wipe oh. it out. You get asymptotically okay. close. Um, yeah, that, and, uh, that that's probably sense. not how I used it because it sounds a little klutzy or clumsy, 
but I used it in some way or another. Maybe you will yeah. never have true Middle East peace, but this administration got as asymptotically close as you could. You know, there's That's there's ways a, to do it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. And I had never thought of it that way. I always thought of it as a math geek. Um, the other thing you brought up today, Sturman Drahn, beautiful. Um, it was a, uh, and of course, again, for the intellectuals in the audience, that was the late 17th, 18th century, 18th century uh, term that uh, Goethe and Schiller, German, yep. obviously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, had used and written plays, and I think it's sort of a descendant of Rousseau. Yep. Um, and from what I could read, it uh, what's the right word? It, to me, uh, I think it signifies what turmoil is. That the best word? Yeah, yeah. Or, There's another phrase I often well, use. Yeah, turmoil, uh, consternation, uh, tempest yeah. in a pot or a teapot. The yeah. other, the other, the other phrase I like a little bit better um, from uh, Henry the Fourth Shakespeare is alarms and excursions. I love that phrase. Alarms and excursions. Activity That's and beautiful. uproar. Oh yeah, I use yeah. that a lot. I find that maybe we waste Shakespeare on the youth. I was forced yeah. to read Shakespeare too young to appreciate it. I don't know if others have had well, that experience, but the more um, the older you get, the more you appreciate his use of language. Oh, absolutely, and I, I'm with you on that. I think most kids, which is why I think it's it's just terrible that there's this effort to remove Shakespeare from uh, from from the schools uh, as i was re- re- oh, reading about the other day yeah. powerline wrote it up it, yeah just a terrible thing to do with the language yeah it is then uh, my last thing has to do again we were talking a little bit about plato's republic yeah. and i know yeah. that yeah. you know your your chapter 7 about the cave going into the light yeah um i i reread it and i think uh, you know as i was reading it and finished the chapter alone um it was clear to me that Neither politicians, nor journalists, nor teachers, nor professors, and certainly not students, have read, nor do they understand it. Because, you know, you were talking earlier about character. I always look at it as honor. Um, There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of that going around. Hold that thought, because I want to say something about that very thing, Rob, and I want to say something about the the story of the cave, um, if, 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 if you can. I've used it in a couple monologues, Bill, haven't I? But um, let me give you a surprisingly fun take and dive on it in just a moment. We'll be right back on our New Year's Eve show with a disquisition on the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic. Trust me, it'll be more fun than it sounds. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Little Don Williams there on a song that was revived, if I'm not mistaken, by Alan Jackson. Rob, in surprise, has been on hold patiently. Um, thank you through the break, Rob. I appreciate it. We were talking. Oh, no, I, uh, I appreciate you. We were talking um, about um, the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic. I use it a lot because. Yeah. Um, should I do it real quickly? The, the notion is, for those that don't know it, Plato Plato postulates that there's a group of people with their backs towards the opening of the cave, and they are chained to um, um, inside the cave, facing facing the inside wall of the cave, and they see shadows, of course, going by from behind them, but they don't realize they're shadows. They think that's reality because they're forced to look forward, right? They think the shadows right. are the reality. 
Someone comes in, liberates them from their chains. They go out their chains. They go outside. They they see reality, and then they're immediately blinded. They don't like it. They don't like it because it hurts their eyes, and they're tempted to go back in as much as they are tempted not to believe that that's reality. And then when they finally realize what reality is and they go back and tell the other people still in the cave, they're apt not to believe them. That's basically, in a nutshell, scratch the allegory of the cave. And Right, Rob? That's it, in, in a nutshell, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, it is. And I use it a lot. I use it a ton because I believe modern education is, um, as well as modern uh, race theory, as well as the kind of crud you get from the 1619 movement and the Smithsonian Whiteness Project, it, it is taking us from an enlightenment, I'm using the word carefully, which our Declaration of Independence was a product of opening our eyes for the world to see what freedom and equality was like, taking us from enlightenment and putting us back into the cave, if you will, turning us all back into cavemen, into darkness, what Ronald Niebuhr called children of dark rather than children of light. Absolutely. And um, if I, I wanted to add a couple of um, uh, supplements. Yeah. First well, all, oh, one more uh, thing before I forget it, then I'll let you do oh, it, sure. because my grasp is oh, tenuous. Okay. One more thing. Sure. The other problem with it now, teaching it now, Alan Bloom translated Plato's Republic years before he wrote The Closing of the American Mind. In his introduction of the story of the allegory, in his introduction to the his translation of Plato's Republic, he said the problem with teaching it now is it's hard for students to comprehend there is actually something as truth. So it's not as fun as it yeah. once was. Anyway, sorry, I just had to get that in there, too. No, that's, that's perfect, because, you know, I looked at, first of all, it's, it's a discussion, and, and a lot of people probably don't realize that Plato's Republic is really about Socrates yeah. and, and not Plato. But in, in the Chapter 7, he's having a discussion with, I think, Glaucon. I mm-hmm. don't know if that's the right pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he was a young uh, warrior, and being young... Uh, you know, he had young people thought. And so his discussion with Socrates, uh, Socrates is trying to convey all those points uh, that uh, uh, that came across in Chapter 7. Um, ultimately, I think the whole book itself, not just Chapter 7, has to do with the Hellenic um, ideal of the state. In other words, you know, they want, he believed in training young people in the virtue. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the idea going from the cave to the light uh, is sort of an ascent of the soul mm-hmm. from shadows mm-hmm. into an intellectual world where there is reason and truth and justice and absolute good. I think that's one of the keys that I got out of it. Another thing I got a kick out of was that he really stressed arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, knowledge of the eternal, drawing the soul towards the truth, um, and, and also... Uh, he had a couple of comments. One was, uh, which I've always believed in, be very wary of those who want power, uh, period, but also support those who probably are capable but don't really want the power. I think there's probably, that's one of the main reasons, I think, why we never get the best people to run for office, because most people who are smart and wise 
and educated wouldn't want to have to put up with that whole process. Uh, correct. They're the very people that should be correct uh, in office instead of the people that actually are. And I think that shows all the time. All the time. Uh, when you look at, when you look at the people that ends up being being in office and ultimately you know being corrupted by it. Um, One the of, only other thing yeah. I go had, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I had uh, the first time I think in the book in chapter seven he actually used the term dialectic. Now, when we think of dialectic, we think of, you know, Hegel, Marx, yeah. Engels, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it, it, I'm not sure, but it seems like what he's talking about uh, is uh, the dialectic of the intellect and uh, attaining some sort of a, oh, God, the words escape me, a conception of the essence. Yeah, synthesis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, synthesis. Yeah, exactly. Um and it's just, I think it's one of the key chapters in the whole book, but I think it also, uh, there's so much in it. And if it can't be taught, it must be taught young. Uh, if it can't be taught in colleges, it, it should be taught at much a much earlier age so that kids, young kids, can understand all the virtues that obviously are missing almost everywhere these days. Yeah, this is, this is a hugely important point. And when these uh, racialists in education or elsewhere say well we can't teach plato dead white male didn't speak to a black audience it's white education we've been hearing that for years at the college level it's now in the elementary and secondary it is a tragedy it is a tragedy to deprive yeah to deprive any child of the discussion that you get through the socratic method as put forward for example in a book like the republic where you get to learn about how to think about concepts of justice. There's nothing in Plato's Republic, nothing, zero, that is about white justice or black justice or any other, but just justice. Why would you not want to have that discussion? There are certain virtues, Rob, as you say, that, in fact, any virtue really worthy of its weight, that transcends this nonsensical fixation we have with race, ethnicity, or geography. I mean, do you know? Do you know any girl anywhere who likes to be grabbed against her will, regardless of race or ethnicity? Of course you don't. Or boys who like of to be bullied, regardless, you know, in a certain race uh, or ethnicity. Of course not. Of course not. Um, it, the, the notion of teaching justice as justice to deprive people of that. That thousands-year-old education and conversation, I think, is a crime on the child's brain. And it's a national tragedy. Yes, I do, too. I know. And I'm be, I'll be happy to teach it anywhere if anybody wants to talk to me about it. Yeah, maybe you should do a podcast on it. Yeah, really. I think I might. Anyway, Seth, God bless you. God and bless you and news, Happy okay? New Year. Yeah, you betcha, Thank Rob. You. What a fun Thank segment you. that was. So glad you called. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. This is our New Year's episode. Bill in Phoenix. Hello, Bill. Well, good afternoon, Seth. Great to hear you. It's nice to hear from you. How are you, sir? Well, wonderful. I had a aha moment, if you will. Mm-hmm. A eureka moment. I was walking down the aisle at uh, Walmart, and coming the other way was a young black man, uh, I happened to be an older white man, and he had a T-shirt, and the T-shirt said, it's all about attitude. 
And as I passed him, I sort of smiled and nodded, and he said, Hi, how are you doing? And we sat down and had a little chat. No kidding. <laughs> In the busy season, two strangers just sat down and had a chat. Yeah, and color had nothing to do yeah. with a friendly meeting. Yeah. And uh, it sort of took me back, like, I think that's where we are. It's all. It's only about attitude. I love the adi- I love the idea that attitude is um, is is prime. Uh, the phrase attitude, uh, an attitude of gratitude, is an important one in in many uh, in many in many circles. Bill, uh, how long? Do, uh, this is just fast. This, two strangers in a store. One recognizes the other's T-shirt, and you guys decide to sit down and, and have a chat. How long was your chat? Oh gosh, it was a couple minutes. We what did you talk about? about? Oh, we talked about shopping and uh, the crowd and that sort of thing, and just uh, had nothing to do huh. with race or color. Huh. And, and what it did is it it took me back memory lane, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the late fifties, uh, I was stationed at a small town training base in the south. Yeah. And at that time, even a shabby gas station had four restrooms. Yeah. Okay. Uh, white men and women, black yeah. men and women. Yeah. It had different drinking fountains that were labeled black and white. The movie theater had a rear entrance for blacks, and they could only sit in the balcony. And we've crawled a long way out of that hole, and I really believe what we are down to, because the opportunities are that we're down to attitude. Hard to um, hard to uh, explain to younger generations that we did this. Parts of our country did this once upon a time. And when we look at it now, we think of it as being the most unnatural of things, don't we? We wonder what were we thinking? Yeah. And, and what were we thinking? Yeah. If, if you walk down the sidewalk and there was a black, he would step aside and, and step into the... Into yeah, the, yeah. And, and it reminds me come, of the story I was talking about... Um, uh, in one of my monologues about a week ago, there was this uh, thing going around on Instagram from a story uh, in the Huffington Post that white people shouldn't drink coffee because coffee is a black person's drink. And I said, do you understand how nonsensical this is? The civil rights movement in large part started with what was known as the Greensboro Four, you know, the Greensboro students in North Carolina who wanted to desegregate the counters by demanding that they be served a cup of coffee in a whites-only counter. Do you realize how absurd it was? We have gone from something as simple as an African-American wanting a cup of coffee as being a moment of civil rights and equality as well it should have been without their efforts, but it needed their efforts, to the point where we're now saying whites can't drink coffee. We're resegregating ourselves all over again. And what your little act did was show that we, you know, there's a part of this country that just doesn't put up with it. Two common guys walking around in Walmart are that. Well, I thought it was fascinating, and uh, I really think that we have swept away an awful lot. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, there was a recent article in the journal by Rodley Stevens, and he talked about yep. uh, where he was. Yes, and, I and saw that. It was yesterday. I meant to get to it, 
but uh, it was taking on the myth of systemic racism, wasn't it? Is that the piece you're talking about? Yes, it was. Yeah, and yeah. one of the least important things about the, Yeah, him. he said it's the least interesting thing about me is that I'm black. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I thought I would uh, tell you that tale that brightened my day. I am glad you did, Bill. Thank you. By the way, as of having a Eureka moment, who was it who shouted Eureka? Do you remember who famously shouted Eureka? I found it. I would guess it would be in California, maybe a gold miner. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Close. Archimedes. Archimedes. In discovering the Archimedean principle of volume displacement. <laughs> well, but there is a Eureka, California. You're right. You're yes, right. there is. You're right. God bless you, Bill. Happy Thank New Year. Bye. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're feeling sluggish, if you're waking up in the morning after a hard, long night of anything and you feel a little depleted, uh, if you are interested in improving your health and boosting your immunity and energy, Balance of Nature is for you. I take it every single day, tens of thousands of vital nutrients in one daily dose, great, potent, healthy, powerful stuff from whole food plants fruits and vegetables that's all it is you take it once a day and they have a great deal offering free shipping and 35 percent off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies give them a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code balance will you uh bear with me for just a second here i want to read you something this is from a speech to the national school boards association in 1986 that then-U.S. Secretary of Education Bill Bennett gave. Five years ago, Eastside High School in Patterson, New Jersey, was an inner-city school that had simply gotten out of control. Gangs roamed the hallways carrying razors and knives to extort money from other students. Hoodlums recruited girls for prostitution. Drug dealing was rampant. The smell of dope filled the stairwells. On and on, he describes it, skipping ahead. One man named Joe Clark volunteered to become its principal. On the morning of September 8, 1982, opening day at Eastside, 3,000 students found Clark waiting in the hall with a bullhorn in his hand. I am your new principal, Joe Clark said. This is the new Eastside High School. What was exists no more. Get to your classroom. Everyone was given a list of rules. If you talked back to a teacher, you were suspended for five days. If you graffitied a wall, ten days. Clark announced a dress code. You've got Calvin Klein's on your behinds and nothing in your minds, he said. The school was cleaned up from top to bottom. If a teacher was incompetent, Clark told him so to his face. Twenty transferred out. Three hundred juniors and seniors were expelled. I'm not going to let three hundred hoodlums destroy the lives of three thousand students, Clark told them. As for drugs, he told students, if you're smoking or dealing, you're out. If you come here, you just might get hurt, he told the pushers. He turned the school around from a 56% basic skills testing rate for ninth graders. It became 91%. That's in math. Reading went from 40 to 68%. Do you know who Joe Clark was? There's a movie based on him. The movie was Lean on Me. He was played by Morgan Freeman. And I sadly report the news that Joe Clark just passed away today. Uh, I thought it interesting. Uh, Bill Bennett uh, gave him and Jaime and Scalante uh, the Stand and Deliver movie. 
uh, he gave them their national prominence, and movies were then made about them. That's what you can do with another kind of bully, bill, uh, another kind of bullhorn, you know, another kind of uh, bullhorn that Secretary Bennett used. He liked Joe. I remember sixty minutes, Mike Wallace going after Joe Clark. How can you do this? How can you be? Well, you know what? Because he cared about the students. That's how. Karen is in Phoenix. Hi, Karen. Hi. So I know people may not like what I have to say, but my parents were Holocaust survivors, and I'll tell you, there was never any discussion of the war, and I was treated very bad as a child growing up in Detroit. A lot of the anti-Semitism. We were very poor. We never got help. Um, My father lost his whole family. My mother was in labor camps and watched people be killed in Europe. Um, you know, I, I feel bad for black people and Hispanic people, but I'll tell you the truth. Nobody ever felt bad for me. And um, even to this day, I've worked at many jobs in this city. I was discriminated, and I had to hide in the shell and just move on and learn to say nothing. So, um, you know... And there's a lot of anti-Semitism by black people against Jewish people. Yeah, this was this that this did take place hugely uh, in the '60s. It was a tremendous disappointment. It, it, it rankled New York City um, and places like Detroit, and it was so sad uh, in part because so many of the civil rights organizations, including the NAACP including the Rosenwald schools. They were founded in large part with um, with a lot of Jewish charity and uh, inspiration and money and donations. It was a real sad coming apart. And then, of course, you saw the uh, Black Power Movement, the Black Panther Movement, as well as the Nation of Islam Movement move into such hardcore anti-Semitism. It was a big part of the teacher strike in New York in the late 60s. Um, you bet, Karen. It was it was a very, very sad thing. Um, but what's interesting to me today about, you know, looking at things that involve claims of institutional racism or things that involve pitting one race against each other because of, quote unquote, privilege, which is what you're talking about, is um, is that it doesn't exist it's a myth. Rav Aurora uh, has been on the case on this, both at Quillette and at the New York Post, showing newly released statistics from the U.S. Department of Labor that uh, break down various minorities and subgroups in America that are far outperforming um, whites in America, some of them from Africa, some of them from Asia, the Persian community particularly high-performing. This notion of institutional race, someone forgot to tell these groups um, that there's that, that, that this notion of white privilege, when you look at the data, really doesn't exist when you categorize people just as black, let's say, or African-American. There are, there are uh, African-American communities, Ghanaians come to mind, that far outperform uh, white Americans as a, as, a, as a whole, as a central uh, as a central uh, uh, thesis or hypothesis. It's it's really tragic that we do this and build the kinds of resentments you're talking about, of course, and indeed have experienced. But to me, I learned a long time ago, and I think I'm right about this, which is why I've always, maybe, maybe why I've always been interested in civil rights. Um, 
Someone once asked Harry Jaffa, who is Jewish, why he cared so much about why he wrote so much about slavery and cared so much about slavery. Um, in his work on Lincoln and the Declaration, he said, "Well, obviously you've heard of Moses, haven't you? Um, slavery, you know, predates America. You can read about it in the Bible, obviously, and the Passover story." But that was his point. I, I and I suppose I've been so. Um, animated on the issue of civil rights and equal rights my whole life because at a at a more at at a more basic level i have found that um if someone hates blacks 99.99% chance they also hate jews and hispanics and any other group and it goes the other way too if someone hates jews they probably also hate other minorities. What is sad is when minorities are pitted against one another. And for that, I do blame. I do blame the departure from King and the embrace of Nation of Islam and black power movements of the late 60s. I really do. Let me put in a word for uh, this great documentary, Poor to CEO, The Incredible Journey of Herman Cain. You can get it at SalemNow.com. It's one of the most inspirational films of the year, SalemNow.com. And it's the story of the rise of Herman Cain from being raised in dire poverty to becoming the head of a, rec a hugely recognizable and successful American company. He was a candidate for president. He fought and, and, and beat cancer. He's a great radio host, an amazing man, Herman Cain. Go to SalemNow.com. Make sure to use promo code PHOENIX to save 20%. Porta CEO, the Herman Cain story at SalemNow.com. Tale of two educators. I guess in a way Herman Cain was an educator too. But Joe Clark, who I just talked about, who passed, uh, passed on um, uh, today – and turned around school in Patterson, New Jersey, by getting rid of the violent actors and the bad teachers and the drug dealers and the uh, physical abusers. Just kicked them out. Kicked them out and didn't care. Walked around with a bullhorn and a billy club. Joe Clark. And they made a movie about him. He was played, uh, played by one of the most famous actors in Hollywood. Morgan, right? Morgan Freeman. It's a tale of one kind of educator. Here's the tale of another one. Rodney Robinson is a teacher in Richmond, Virginia. He received the Teacher of the Year Award, National Teacher of the Year Award, last year from the Council of Chief State School Officers. You can go to the NEA website, National Education Association website, to see how proud they were of Rodney Robinson, the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. Um... If you look up his Twitter handle, he gives you his pronouns, which is handy, because who would think to look at a man and think that he was a guy, but he tells us, he, him, 2019 National Teacher of the Year. He's proud of it, too. Should that organization be proud of the tweet he put up five hours ago? Let me read it to you. Who are Mitch McConnell's neighbors? I'm just saying, Rand Paul's neighbor did what a true Kentucky hero should do to Mitt, to, to Mitch. It's your turn to step up. 
Do it again. Who are Mitch McConnell's neighbors? I'm just saying Rand Paul's neighbor did what a true Kentucky hero should do. It's your turn to step up. National Teacher of the Year, encouraging vigilantes to attack Mitch McConnell physically and send him to the hospital. Tale of two kinds of educators.